You're listening to Fence Posts, Foundations for the Christian Life. Fence Posts is a teaching ministry of Pastor Mike Woodruff of Christ Church Lake Forest. Fence Post number six, The Plan. This study carries us across the line. We began this series by exploring the concept of worldviews and the foundations they're built upon. We continued by focusing on the Christian worldview, noting the remarkable claims the Bible makes about itself and the 10 reasons I choose to believe they're true. In the last two studies, we've watched the Bible unfold in 13 different scenes divided into two powerful acts. In this final study, things get a bit more personal. I want to explain how God's grace can be applied to your life enabling you to enter a deep, joyful, and transformational relationship with Him, one that restores your soul and helps move you towards becoming who you were created to be. You can get better. Millions of people have. The Holy Spirit can make you holy. Change is possible. This assumes, of course, that you want to. To this point, I've been writing for people on both sides of the line, those who have embraced Christ as God and those who have not. I am now going to focus on those who have. In fact, I'm going to focus on those who have and who want to move forward. To that end, I'm going to assume that if you keep reading this, it's either because you believe that Christianity is true or you're so close to believing it that you can't walk away. This does not mean that you have worked out every detail or have complete confidence in the Bible. It simply means that you're ready to press ahead. Everybody has to rely on something. You have decided to rely on Jesus. The question now is, what does that mean? What does it look like? Exactly how does someone follow Christ? I started down this path almost 30 years ago when a friend told me about the ways his life had changed. I had known him well enough to know that something was different and was quite intrigued by his reports of forgiveness, purpose, peace, and eternal life. The irony is I'd been raised in a church-going family and had even joined the church myself. But the longer I listened to him, the more I realized that I didn't have any idea what he was talking about. He enjoyed reading the Bible, talked about knowing God, and included Christ in everyday conversations. I, on the other hand, almost never read the Bible, wasn't sure that God existed, and only went to church because my parents made me. I didn't know what to do about my friend. His experiences did not match mine, but his joy was infectious. For about a year, I listened but doubted. However, my skepticism slowly waned, and after about 18 months, I decided that he was right. It took me almost another year to do anything about it, But by the start of my senior year in high school, I had crossed over the line and was moving ahead. To use some of the terms I'm going to explain in just a few pages, I moved from someone who was exploring Christ to someone who was growing in Christ. My spiritual journey since then has been long, slow climb, one filled with periods of rapid growth and times of stagnation. I've certainly not moved forward like I could have. In fact, I'm not terribly happy about the progress I've made. But by God's grace, I'm not where I once was, and I do have a peace and a joy that I did not have before. Over the course of the three decades I've been following Christ, I have learned a number of basic truths. It's to these that we now turn our attention. Some of what I'm going to share was introduced in an earlier study. Little of what follows is complicated, but please do not let the simplicity of the points mislead you. They are both important and profound, and fully embracing them is the work of a lifetime. In an effort to make things as clear as possible, I'm going to be referring to a diagram. It's just a simple vertical line 
ranging from negative 5 on the left to positive 5 on the right. Negative 5 is being as far from God as we can be. 5, positive 5, is being united with Christ, one with Christ. And 0 is the point of transition. This diagram is not without its limitations, but I believe it's a helpful backdrop for the explanations that follow. We now turn our attention to 10 transformational and universal truths. Number one, you are a spiritual being located somewhere on this spectrum. The Bible claims that every person, both the saint and the terrorist, have been spiritually formed or malformed in some way. You may not have given this idea much thought. In today's frenetically paced and entertainment-saturated culture, it's possible to be remarkably unreflective about many things, including the state of our own soul. But I'd ask you to think about it now, because whether you've considered it or not, you're on this spectrum. God created you in His image. And whatever else this means, it's clear that you are more than a physical body. You have a soul, and that soul falls somewhere on this spectrum. Just like your body, your soul's health is determined by what you do. In fact, your location on the spectrum has been determined by all the things you have thought, said, and done. Everything you do affects your soul in some way. Given our earlier discussion about Christ, let me suggest that it's also helpful to think of your spiritual condition in relationship to Him. According to this assessment, you are likely to fall into one of four camps. Camp one is exploring Christ. Those in this first group would say, I believe in God, but I'm not sure about Christ. My faith is not a significant part of my life. Camp two is growing in Christ. Those in group two say, I believe in Jesus, and I am working on what it means to get to know him. Camp three is close to Christ. Those in this third category report, I feel close to Christ and depend on him daily for guidance. Category four is Christ-centered. Those in this last group report, my relationship with Jesus is the most important relationship in my life. It guides everything I do. The key point I'm trying to make here is that we are all spiritual beings. Whether you're at negative three or positive two on the spectrum or, ex or are exploring Christ or Christ-centered, you are a spiritual being. Point number two, we all start in negative numbers. Though God initially declared that everything he created was good, that's not the case today. Certainly it's not the case for us. As a result of Adam's rebellion, we have inherited a broken nature. Or, to state this more theologically, we are sinners. This is not a popular notion. In fact, today most people either dismiss the idea of sin altogether or blame their mistakes on someone else. But the Bible teaches that we all fall short of God's holiness and describe this shortfall as sin. In the deepest parts of our being, we are corrupt. In fact, Paul states that we are not called sinners simply because we sin, but that we sin because we are sinners. There is no chicken and egg mystery here. We are born broken. The reason we act selfishly and wickedly is because that is the state of our soul. But wait, you protest. That's just not true for me. I may mess up from time to time, but I do not act wickedly, nor do my friends. Sure, there's a lot of ugliness in the world, war and the like, but many people are kind and loving. Great point. And you're right. Except I'm not suggesting that we're as bad as we can be, just that we are as bad off as we can be. Theologically speaking, we've got to distinguish between utter and total depravity. 
The former suggests that we are 100% evil. In other words, that we're hovering around negative 5 on the spectrum. The latter, which is what the Bible teaches, suggests that evil has destroyed us much like cancer destroys a cell. Most of us work hard to do the right thing, honor our commitments and care for others, which means that while we may not be perfect, we could be worse. What I'm arguing is, while we could be worse, we can't be perfect, at least not on this side of the grave. According to the Bible, every area of our life, our mind, body, emotions, and soul, has been damaged by the effects of the fall. Secondly, I'm arguing that though we are not as bad as we could be, we're all as bad off as we can be. We have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. There may be a difference between getting a zero on an exam and a 59, but if a 59 is a failing grade, you still flunk. Thirdly, I'm arguing that this means you and me. When I say that we're all sinners, I'm not just talking about Adolf Hitler's and the Jeffrey Dahmer's of the world. Many people believe that some people are evil. What the Bible teaches is that we all are. It's not just Nazi tyrants and serial killers who miss the mark. Everybody does. To state this as simply as I know how, we all start in negative numbers. We are not inherently good. We're not even morally neutral. Instead, we have a broken, sinful heart. Point number three. We ultimately end up at one end of the spectrum or the other. During this life, it's impossible to reach either negative or positive five, but the Bible teaches that after we die, we're judged by God and either welcomed into his presence or sent completely away. In other words, we will spend our ever after at one end of the spectrum or the other, heaven or hell. The idea that we're held accountable for the way we live, in other words, how we respond to God, treat others, handle the truth, care for the poor, spend our money, etc., this is very disconcerting. The idea that our eternal destiny hangs in the balance is terrifying. Clearly, this is one test you want to pass. Therefore, what we want to hear in any discussion that includes heaven and hell is that God grades on a generous curve and that we get to keep taking the test until we pass. In other words, what we want to hear is that there is nothing to worry about. Everything is going to work out just fine. But that's hardly the message of the Bible. Instead, when we turn to the New Testament, we're told that People are destined to die once and after this to face judgment. Additionally, we're told that this should scare us. In fact, in Matthew 10, 28, Jesus, who speaks more about heaven and hell than anyone else in the New Testament, says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. In other words, fear God because he controls your ultimate destiny. I realize that this is not what people want to hear, nor does it reflect the popular view of Jesus, but it's what the Bible teaches. In fact, this is a reoccurring theme. Consider two other comments in Matthew. Christ made both of these. In the 13th chapter, we read, The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into a fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Twelve chapters later, in Matthew 25, Jesus tells his disciples, 
When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Again, I realize that this is not what people want to hear nor does it reflect the popular view of Jesus, but it's what the Bible teaches. The message of Scripture is clear. This life is brief. Eternity is not. The opportunity to be reconciled with God is now. Therefore, do not squander your opportunities. Use the gifts He's entrusted to you to serve others and honor Him. Point number four. The goal is Christ. So far, I have stated that we are all spiritual beings. We start in negative numbers and that after we die, we head to one end of the spectrum or the other. I've also made it quite clear that we want to head towards God. At this point, I want to be very clear about our goal. A Christian's highest aspiration is not to be forgiven, get into heaven, know about God, or simply start a relationship with him, one that we carry on after we die. Our goal is to know Christ in an intimate, transformational way, one that changes us and brings him glory. In his letter to the Philippians, the Apostle Paul stated it this way. Our goal is, quote, to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead, end of quote. You were created to know God to enjoy a deep and abiding communion with him in this life and the next, one that celebrates his grace, majesty, and glory, one that molds you into the image of his son. You will never be satisfied if you stop right after you cross into positive numbers. The move from darkness into light starts your new life, but it hardly completes it. In fact, stepping across the line and then stalling is like saying, I do at your wedding and then telling your spouse, I'll see you on most Sunday mornings. I'll try not to be late. That approach hardly constitutes a marriage. It does not describe the Christian life. The opportunity we are given is to live all our life in communion with Christ, leaning into his grace and following his example. Most people do not do this. And as a result, they boundary God, acting as if both his time and interests are limited. The simple truth is, he is always interested in everything. 
Everything everywhere belongs to him, including you. He is interested in everything you think, do, and say 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Nothing falls outside his purview, which means a growing relationship with him changes everything. Most people do not get this. I sure didn't at first. If you had asked me to describe my spiritual life shortly after I came to faith, I would have talked about something that looks like a pie with each wedge of the pie being some different aspect of my life. There was a, an emotional, social part of it. There was a, a, a professional part of my life, a physical aspect of my life, a family part of my life. And, and among the many different pieces of the pie, there was a spiritual dimension of my life. My faith was one part of who I was. Indeed, at some point, it became the most important part, and the wedge began to expand. But it was unwittingly isolated my spiritual life affected spiritual things, but seldom crossed the line. It took me a while to realize that this paradigm was wrong. What God offers is a deep, abiding relationship with Him, one that includes every aspect of who you are. Consequently, spiritual growth is not a matter of expanding one wedge of the pie, all while acting as if some things do not matter to God. It's a matter of realizing that it is all His and seeking to live in submission to His will. It's recognizing that God has something to say about who you date, how you treat your neighbor, which TV shows you watch, and how you spend your time and money. I realize that this might strike you as oppressive. I promise you it's anything but, which leads to the next point. Point number five, spiritual growth is its own reward. A deep, intimate relationship with Christ, one that changes you by shaping your thinking and molding your habits, is exactly what you want whether you realize it or not. High on my list of initial fears about following Christ was the belief that it would be boring and hard. It has proven to be the opposite. In fact, I've not only found it fulfilling in ways I could never have imagined, I am now convinced that spiritual growth makes life easier. Godly character is its own reward. I do not want to suggest that I don't face headaches, heartaches, and hassles. Life in a fallen world is riddled with them. And I'm not suggesting, as some do, that if you follow Christ closely, he'll bless you with good health and good parking. What I mean is that I am not left without a guide. God communicates through the Bible. It's full of wisdom and truth. And if we follow it, life works. Telling the truth works. Honoring your parents works. Keeping your wedding vows works. You will still face challenges, but far fewer than you would have otherwise. This should not surprise us. After all, we were created for God. It, it makes sense that our most fulfilling life would come through a relationship with God because this is what we were created for. Our culture of self-improvement has turned spirituality into a narcissistic pursuit. That will not work. Fulfillment is found in God, not in ourselves. As Augustine, the 4th century church father, said so eloquently, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, O God. Secondly, the denial we're called to is not a denial of our true selves. Following Christ means that we say no to things we might otherwise say yes to. Sometimes this is hard, but it's always for the best. Sin is attractive for a moment, but God directs us to those joys that will last. Following Christ never makes us less human, only more. Jesus is the only truly human person to have lived. Point three, joy is exactly what Jesus promised. In John 10, Christ told his disciples, I have come that you might have life and might have it abundantly. Well, what he meant by this is far different than what many people think. 
and far different than what many health and wealth advocates promise, it's actually what we most deeply desire. We are completed in Christ. To state this simply, in the same way that it's easier to be healthy than sick, it's easier to follow Christ than to pursue any other option. Godly character is its own reward. So how do we move forward? The New Testament divides spiritual growth into two parts, crossing the line, aspects of which are captured in the terms salvation and justification, and growing in spiritual maturity, which is referred to as our sanctification. It's to the first that we now turn our attention. Point number six, we cross into positive numbers through Christ. How do we move into positive numbers? We do so through the grace of Christ. Spiritual rebirth is a process superintended by God and dependent upon Him. This is what makes Christianity so utterly unique. Most religions suggest that we advance our station in the next world by right living and religious devotion in this one. In other words, we earn it. The Bible says that this is impossible. It applauds right living, especially that which extends care and concern to others, most notably the poor. But the Bible also makes it clear that we are reconciled with God through the sacrificial death of Christ alone. In fact, the Bible makes it very clear that we do not contribute to this process at all. In the third chapter of Philippians, Paul uses himself to illustrate man's inability to find favor with God through good works. He begins by listing all of the things he did to earn God's favor before dismissing the entire list. In fact, Paul argues that even though his efforts at spiritual improvement exceeded those of all his contemporaries, they did not do a thing for his soul. Quote, If anyone thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. End of quote. In Ephesians 2, he develops this point further, declaring, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's very hard for us to accept this as true. In a world where there are no free lunches, the idea that there is a free eternity seems unlikely, perhaps even unsettling. Many of us would be far more comfortable with the arrangement if we could pay our own way. But a relationship with God is a gift. We do not earn it. We do not earn our way into heaven through church attendance, sacrificial living, or earnest devotion. In fact, we do not contribute a single penny towards the payment of our moral debt. Like a helpless two-day-old infant who is adopted into a loving family, we are welcomed into the family of God. The legal arrangements and paperwork have all been taken care of by someone else. Spiritual rebirth is a gracious work of God alone. Point number seven. Growth requires effort. Having answered the question about rebirth, in other words, how do we move into positive numbers, we now turn to the question about our sanctification. In other words, how do we continue forward? How do we move from point one towards five? The answer, which may surprise some people, 
is that we do so through a combination of God's grace and our efforts. To quote Augustine again, we cannot do it on our own and God will not do it without us. Some are confused by this because they believe that spiritual growth is up to us, but that is clearly not the case. In Philippians 1, the Apostle Paul states, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the completion, showing that the catalyst for our spiritual transformation is God. In Galatians 5, the Apostle ascribes spiritual maturity to the work of the Holy Spirit. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, he prays, quote, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. End of quote. Clearly, this is not a process we can engineer on our own. However, it is just as clear that we cannot sit back and wait to become more Christ-like. In his letters to Timothy, Paul tells his young protege to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, and then later, study to present yourself a workman approved unto God. In his letter to the Philippians, they're told to work out their salvation. And Jesus calls on those who want to be his disciples to pick up their cross and follow him. If these passages leave any doubt, Paul's description of the Christian life as a race certainly removes them. In the ninth chapter of his first letter to the church in Corinth, he writes, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. We do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Discipline, deny, work out, study, run, fight, pick up. Clearly, there is nothing passive about Christian growth. Holiness is not a condition into which we drift. Those who sit back and hope they will become transformed are either naive or lazy or both. The only thing that is guaranteed to happen over time is that we will get older. If we want to grow closer to God, we must lean into his grace, align ourselves with his purposes, and allow the Holy Spirit to do his work in and through us. Point number eight. Most people stall. All of this brings us to this final truth, which is a sad one. Most people stop well short of the goal. In spite of all God offers, and despite how eternally important their growth is, most people do not make it very far out of the gate. To some extent, this has always been the case. In his first letter to the church in Corinth, Paul lamented that they were too immature to understand what he really wanted to share with them. The author of Hebrews offers essentially the same complaint about a different group, writing, We have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you're slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Some such as Paul, raced ahead, but many have limped. And if that were true then, it's even more true now. Sure, there are pockets of health and vitality in the church, but few would confuse today's established institutions with the revolutionary force that swept through the first centuries. 
The clear implication is that there is far too little transformation taking place. In fact, a recent study found that almost a quarter of the people who profess to be following Christ admit that they've stalled. May I plead with you to give some thought as to where you stand. There's nothing wrong with being at one and a half on the spectrum if you've only been a Christian for three months. It's an entirely different matter, though, if you've been a Christian for three years or for 30. We are expected to grow. And there are two things about which I believe we can be certain. One day you will wish that you had grown, and nothing that is now distracting you is worth it. So what's the least you can do? I mean, what, what can I do? What comes next? How, how should I order my day? Are there 10 steps I can follow? Three principles to apply? A book to read? Please be specific. Some of you have read this far in hopes of finding some very specific and practical counsel. I hope not to disappoint you, though I may. The truth is, it is at moments such as this that writers face a real temptation to say too much or too little. Since I have made both mistakes in the past, let me be deliberate. The Fence Post series, of which this is the first of seven, is based on several assumptions. The first is that right living is based on right thinking. We're called to both. The second is, right thinking can be found in reason, tradition, and experience, but it's expressed in its highest form in the revelation of God, in other words, the Holy Bible. And thirdly, every person is uniquely formed and distinctively gifted. Therefore, the path they follow towards spiritual growth will be their own. However, the Bible provides a handful of specific next steps and clearly defined expectations for the Christian life. With these points as a backdrop, let me share six basic next steps with you. I believe they are all necessary if you want to grow closer to God. Number one, you need to be actively involved in a church. Two truths are undeniable. First, beginning shortly after his resurrection, Christ's followers have gathered on the first day of the week for worship, prayer, instruction, and encouragement. And second, those who have avoided these gatherings have not fared well. Christianity is not a solo sport. You were created for community. What's more, the church is God's idea. I, I do not need to be told that it's a significantly flawed institution. However, it's God's plan. The church has been formed to help mold you into the image of Christ. Do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. If you want to grow in the image of Christ, Active church involvement is not optional. In fact, because we believe we are called to a level of community and accountability that surpass what, we can take, what can take place on a Sunday morning, we strongly encourage participation in some sort of smaller group as well. Step two, you need to be baptized and regularly partake of the Lord's Supper. Among the many things Christians are expected to do, two stand out, baptism and communion. Theologians actually disagree over all they are all that they entail, but two things are clear. They were established by Christ and were commanded to participate in them. The New Testament does not really have a category for a Christ follower who has not been baptized, nor for one who does not regularly proclaim the Lord's death by breaking of bread and sharing of the cup. If you want to grow, you must participate in the sacraments of the church. Step three. You need to make a handful of spiritual practices a part of your life. 
Jesus taught the disciples to pray. Paul instructed Christ's followers to study the Bible. David modeled confession. Daniel modeled daily times of personal devotion. Throughout the last 2,000 years, those who have been serious about becoming more like Christ have leaned into a dozen or more activities called spiritual disciplines in order to move towards God. These are not acts of righteousness. Instead, they are activities within our power that enable us to disrupt evil habits and patterns in our lives and receive grace to enable us to grow towards easy, routine obedience to Christ. One hour on Sunday is simply not enough. If you want to see change in your life, there will need to be changes in your day. Step four, you need to serve. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. If you hope to be like him, you can do no less. Several sections of the New Testament are devoted to explorations and explanations of spiritual gifts. That is, the unique abilities God has given to people to equip them to serve others in special ways. In a later study, we will explore these in depth. At this moment, all you really need to understand is that everyone is expected to serve. As Paul wrote to the Ephesians, We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. If you want to grow, you have to serve. Paying attention to the needs of those around you and paying special attention to the needs of the poor and the oppressed. Step five you need to give. At the risk of confirming every dark suspicion about clergy in the church you might have, I need to be clear that you're not going to make it very far from the starting line if you do not learn to share all that you have. You certainly cannot grow unless you master money, a topic Christ spoke more about than he did about almost anything, including prayer. Of course, giving means a lot more than writing a check. We are to give of our life, But money represents power and comfort, and it is often one of the first strangleholds we have to break. Finally, step six, you need to share the story. Many wince at the suggestion that we would impose our views on others. Christ simply expected it. In fact, in his final comments to his followers, he commissioned them to do just that, saying, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. At Christ Church, our mission is to lead people into life-changing relationships with God and others by proclaiming the good news and engaging in good works. And our desire is to help people connect, grow, serve, and share. The latter focuses almost exclusively on telling others about Christ. We have this emphasis because we find it in Scripture. Part of our growth involves helping others move out of negative numbers and grow to maturity themselves. If there's any way we can help you on your spiritual journey, please contact us at cclf.org or email us at fenceposts at cclf.org.